Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Our guest today is in the business of helping at-risk kids get on more stable ground. Gabriele Delmonico is president and executive director of A Chance in Life. The international nonprofit provides shelter, food, and education to nearly 4,000 homeless, vulnerable, and refugee youth in nine countries. They recently opened a facility in the north shore of Staten Island, where one out of every three kids lives in poverty. That's twice the national rate. Nearly 20% of the area's young people are disconnected from school and employment. At A Chance in Life, young people ages 12 to 24 take part in programs that offer tutoring, financial literacy, mental health counseling, leadership development, and more. Gabriele, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. George, thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure and an honor for me. So what is the mission of A Chance in Life? A Chance in Life is a 75-year-old nonprofit organization. It was founded in Italy after World War II to respond to the crisis of orphans of the war in Italy, particularly in Rome. Our founder was an Irish priest who at the time was working at the Vatican, and he decided to do something about the children that he saw on the streets. So he uh, founded A Chance in Life, our organization in the United States, to raise money and to support the boys and girls town of Italy, a village where children actually ruled. They were in charge of the town with their own mayor, assembly, parliament, judges, even their own currency. To this day, we help at-risk children around the world in, uh, in this unique way. So that is fantastic. The kids ruled the town, quite literally. Absolutely. You know, the first time I went to, uh, I'm from Rome, as you can hear from my accent, I come from, from Italy, from Rome. I've been in the United States now for uh, over 20 years. But the first time I visited La Città dei Ragazzi, the boys and girl town in Rome, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I heard about self-government and the fact that the kids could govern their own town. But when I went, when I went there, I was really impressed they took me to their, uh, the building where they have their assemblies. It's a parliament. It's a round structure so that everybody has the same weight in, in the assembly. There is no part that is more important than, than the other. And they introduced me to the mayor. And it was a very formal introduction. And then at a certain point, the mayor allowed me to speak and to make some remarks. I addressed the the citizens, as they are called. So very, very formal. But uh, they also have a system where they are paid for their contribution to the society. They have their own currency, as I mentioned before, and it's called the merit. And so for every activity they do, they are paid. Sometimes they're also taxed for some of uh, the money they receive so that they can contribute to common expenses. Very interesting process. And uh, they have elections, so they elect their own leaders on, on a rotational basis. That's fantastic. So the organization has existed, as you said, for 75 years now. How has it evolved in those 75 years? I joined the organization in 2015. At that time, the board was wondering whether we should uh, export this model to other countries for a very simple reason. Today, as you know, the situation in Italy has improved. And most of the children we have in our towns are unaccompanied minors coming from Africa, from neighboring countries around Italy. 
Whenever there is a crisis, civilian arrest, parents, families put their children on a boat, they cross the Mediterranean Sea to look for a better future. So our board asked me to uh, export our model to some of the countries initially surrounding Italy so that we could help their, these children in their home community. So they didn't have to go through the shock of, well, first of all, and a very unpleasant and risky trip. And secondly, you know, when they arrive to Italy, they don't speak the language. They have a different, in most cases, a different religious background, different traditions. So uh, we opened our first program in Ethiopia in 2015, helping 400 children. And then from there, we expanded our programs in the very rural areas of India, tribal areas in Kerala, Tamil Nadu. Now we are also in Gujarat. These are states of India. And then from there, Latin America. Now in Latin America, we are in Peru, Colombia, Guatemala, Bolivia, and Mexico. Why are you expanding now into the United States? Well, excellent question. You know, we are helping children around the world. But what we have learned during COVID is that we have kids in our neighborhoods that need help. I live on Staten Island. I have been living here for 20 years. And, uh, you know, every day I commute to Manhattan and I see a different type of New York City. And now that we, after we did a feasibility study to check where we should open our first boys and girl town here in the United States, particularly in New York City. And we analyzed the five boroughs. As you know, there is a great need in the Bronx, in pocket or pockets of Queens, but these areas are also somehow well served. They are very well known. There are many government agencies or other nonprofit organizations. We realized that the North shore of Staten Island, the Northern part of Staten Island in particular, needs a lot of help. So we decided to open a program in the North Shore of Staten Island. And, you know, as a Staten Islander, we hear the expression, the forgotten borough many times, referring to Staten Island. Now that I'm spending more time in my community connecting with the people living here, I realize that there are many issues that need to be solved. What are the unique challenges facing that community? If you look at Staten Island, there are basically three sections. There is the North Shore, the Mid-Island, and then the South Shore. As you move from the North to the South, in general, the economic situation, the level of culture, everything, you know, increases for, for better. The North Shore doesn't have uh, any ethnic group that prevails over the other. Poverty rate in the North Shore is higher than New York City. It's about 21% of the population lives, uh, live in poverty. And if you look at children, that number goes up to 33%. So, and then about 20% of the population uh, don't, doesn't speak English. English is, uh, you know, their second language and they have difficulties in communicating with others. So all of this creates situations where one of about uh, every four children on Staten Island is detached or idle. That means that they don't go to school or they don't work. So that's the population we are working with. So we'll cover the age range that goes from 12 to 24. As you can imagine, you know, these are also very different types of, of uh, age groups. So with the kids in their 20s, we will work on uh, primarily on uh, internships, job preparation, uh, writing resumes and similar financial literacy classes. With the younger kids, we want to keep them in school 
Uh, and uh, so we will offer tutoring services after the school hours. You also offer STEM, financial literacy, mental health counseling, right? Absolutely, absolutely. During the pandemic, we already started. We recently acquired a building on Staten Island. It's on uh, Castleton Avenue in the north part, northern part of Staten Island in the North Shore, as I mentioned before. And, but during the pandemic, we could not have in-person classes. So we started virtually. We had 12 kids from the Bronx and Staten Island, high school students. So with them, we did a number of, uh, uh, I would say, uh, exercises together. We invited a psychologist and uh, he uh, submitted an issue to them, a problem, a conflict resolution situation. So it was a role play. They had to solve that situation by using their, their skills, their ability to communicate with others. It was a very interesting exercise. And then at the end, uh, we all shared our experiences, what could have been, what we could have done better, what went wrong. And, uh, you know, kids are, are like sponges. They, they learn. And what I learned from this experience is that school is very important, but extracurricular activity are as important. So when we did, for example, a financial uh, literacy course with them, we invited the CEO of a very important uh, large uh, financial brokerage firm here in, uh, in New York City. And the CEO was very kind to dedicate his time to these children. And he offered a financial literacy course. We were surprised to learn how much children today don't know about financial uh, topics, credit cards, rates, uh, you know, it's better to buy or to rent. Some, uh, what do I do with uh, my college loan? It was, again, an eye-opener for them, but also for us. And so we know that now that is a topic we need to cover in the future. If you want to set these kids up for success, no doubt they need to understand how to manage money, understand how to prevent falling into deep debt, right? And one of the advice of uh, the, um, uh, the CEO of this company was uh, you know, very simple. Start saving money as soon as you can. You know, we talked about some uh, free brokerage account they could open and start putting, you know, a few dollars every month so that they can set up um, their savings for the future. I think we live in a society where people don't think about saving, saving money, planning for the future. It's so important. So we covered all these, these topics and uh, uh, the CEO showed to them how much they can save if uh, re religiously they put aside a certain amount of money for about 20 years. And it, it was amazing. So I think he triggered their, their interest in, in, uh, in these topics, and it was very important. How do you help these kids who are in challenging situations realize that they do indeed have an opportunity for a brighter future, that it doesn't have to look so grim? So, George, I think it's an excellent question. I think it's the way we look at children. I believe that children are not problems to be solved, but assets to be nurtured. So when I look at a child with our organization, our, my, my team, you know, we look at a child, we look for opportunities. We look for a great potential. And our job as educators, our job as youth counselor is to find out what these potentials are. What are the uh, elements that they have that could become tomorrow a profession or a passion for, for them? And, you know, passion is another key word here. 
kids, uh, you know, when we think about a job, we, we think sometimes about something we have to do to survive. But no, a job could be interesting. A job could be something that is connected to our passion, to what we like in life. So I'll give you an example. During this uh, virtual program we had with the 12 students, we talked about nonprofit organization management. We are a nonprofit organization. And so we expose them in a way to the different uh, uh, topics or uh, uh, realities of a nonprofit organization, budgeting, advertising, marketing, donor relations, and so on and so forth. It's interesting that about half of the children who participated in this program at the end said that they had, they wanted to do marketing, for example, in life, but they didn't know that they could associate marketing or advertising to a good cause. And so many of them said, one day I would like to work for a nonprofit organization, making money, but at the same time, you know, doing good. And, and so th those are, uh, I guess, successful stories of how a passion can be turned in something helpful. Yeah, I was going to ask that question. It's so important to find your passion. And how do you help young people find their passion? Because if they're not passionate about it, they may very well not be successful at something, right? Absolutely. I know these stories are not applicable only to New York City. For example, you know, as, as I mentioned, we work also in, uh, in Ethiopia. In Ethiopia, we have a situation where elementary schools are very well spread out throughout the, the country. But then, you know, as the level of education goes up, for example, to high school, in rural areas, on average, a student has to walk for two hours in order to reach the closest, the nearest high school. What does that mean? It's a very critical situation, particularly for girls, because they have to walk two hours. There is a risk of abduction on the road uh, for uh, sexual exploitation, early marriages, then, you know, by the time they go back home, two more hours to reach their house, uh, it's dark. They cannot do their homework because they live in uh, huts with no electricity. So their grades start to fail. When the parents see that they're not good in school, they ask the girls particularly to stay home to tend to their younger kids and siblings. So you are interrupting their opportunity for a young girl to become a better mother one day. Every year of education you add to a young girl, you're basically increasing the possibilities of having a, a, you know, a wonderful family in, in the future. You know the saying, you know, if you educate a young man, you're doing a great job. You know, you're giving a, man, a young boy an opportunity. But if you educate a girl, you're educating a future family. This is how powerful women are. And again, these girls sometimes have to protect themselves also from wild animals, for example, from hyenas. So we have stories of girls who, on the way back from, uh, from, from school, they put their books on their head so that they look taller. Usually hyenas do not attack adults, human beings, only kids, children. And so by putting their books on their, on their head, they look taller. This innate sense of survival these children are. And they have wonderful ideas. So one of these girls attending our, attended our program. She lived very far away from the high school, joined us in a village, in a, in a town, we call it, in a, you know, in a community of girls like uh, she is. And then she was able to graduate from high school. She continued. She got a degree in math in college. 
And the first thing she decided to do when she finished was to give back. She told us, I've received so much. I want to dedicate one year of my life to orphans. So she went to the north of Ethiopia, where right now she's volunteering with a church to help orphans. It's uh, discovering these passions, these talents kid, kids have. Imagine if she could not complete her studies. She would be home right now, and that would have been, in a way, the end of her and her future family. How common is it for kids who go through your program to come back and want to give back? We have heard this story uh, many times, and uh, they do it in different ways. In Italy, for example, we have two programs. One is called the Boys and Girls Town. The other one, the Boys and Girls Republic. In uh, both programs, some of the educators are former citizens, as we call them, who are returning to volunteer and provide support to the younger generations of children who are joining the program. So it's a very healthy cycle. But we have seen this also in, uh, in India, for example, in a tribal area in Atapadi, in the northern part of uh, Kerala. One of the boys graduated from, uh, from uh, the, the, our program and then decided to spend time, a couple of years, helping other children who were joining the program. So it's beautiful. We, I always tell our children whenever I visit our programs, remember, you got your chance in life. But remember one day when you become successful to give it back. And in a way, you know, this is also the story of my life. I come from South Italy. My family was poor. My parents, you know, barely went to school. They only attended elementary school. So I, when I finished my high school, I had no chances to continue uh, studying. Then I received a scholarship. I received my chance in life. And I remember, you know, at that time, I thought, you know, one day I want to give back what I've received. And here I am. That's wonderful. A lot of us, kids included, are no doubt craving social connection after the year that we've been through, the year plus that we've been through. How will you as an organization work to continue to foster social connection, nurture that in light of the pandemic and what we experienced? Yes, it will be very important. I, I can see it you know, with uh, my children. I have four children. Three of them are in uh, elementary uh, school. And uh, I've never seen them crying because they could not go to school. Usually it's the opposite, not for children. And you're right. So we will be offering opportunities to uh, children to come to our center, which is called the village uh, on Staten Island, and to spend time together to talk. Our pedagogical approach is uh, to put the uh, children in charge. So if there is an issue, if there is a problem, the, the kids have to solve it. So it, it has to come from them. It's not an imposition from an adult. And so even in this situation, talking about what we are going through, the difficulties, the challenges, but also the successes must come from them, from uh, conversations among, among peers. This is very important. We call it a self-government, but basically it's positive youth development. Okay, the principle is youth have a lot of potentials. It's our responsibility just to help them discover that potential. And so I'm, I'm confident that, you know, this will be an experience for them. The COVID-19 will be remembered as an experience, but they will become even stronger after all of this will be just a, a memory. 
what you're promoting, what you're talking about is the opposite of helicopter parenting, right? The parent who oversees every aspect of their child's life, micromanages it all. Absolutely. This is really the opposite. Uh, in our towns, kids rule, kids are in charge. And uh, it's amazing how this approach goes very far. I also like to share, you know, that uh, when our founder in 1945 decided to do something for children, his first attempt was a total failure. In fact, you know, in a way, he was a sort of a helicopter parent because he was saving kids from the street, the streets. He would put them in an institution, which was very traditional. In the morning, they, were, they had to raise the flag, say the prayer, and then, you know, they would do some common chores, and then they would eat then by a certain time, they would go to bed. He realized that after a little bit, most of the kids were running away. So one time he met one of them on the streets. Uh, his name was Michelangelo. And asked him, Michelangelo, why did you leave? You had a hot meal. You had a place where to stay. And this kid told him, well, uh, Monsignor, Father John was the name of our founder, Monsignor John Patrick Carolabing, for too long, we have been living on the streets by ourselves and we don't want adults to tell us what to do. So that was the idea for our founder. Okay, then I'll create a town and now you will be in charge. So yes, it is the opposite of helicopter parenting. And I think that we, have, we are learning that there is so much that we can learn from children. That said, how much interaction do you have with the parents of the kids that you work with? Well, on Staten Island, particularly here in New York City, we have to be connected with the community. So it's not just the level uh, that we are serving the kids, but also we have to go you know, one or two level up, levels up because it's important to understand why children are in this situation. So if we're trying to save the life of a child or to improve the life of a child, but then you know, he or she goes back home and has a difficult situation, then you know, we are not doing our job in full. We have to connect also with the parents and help them whenever it's possible. So one of the first things we did when we decided to open our program on Staten Island was to connect to almost every other nonprofit organization working here on the island because we would like to create a network. And I have to say, uh, to my surprise, Staten Island is wonderful that way organizations, you know, it's a, it's a small town, everybody knows each other. So there is already a very good network of referrals. And so let's say, if a family needs uh, support with immigration, so there is a network that does that. If a family needs social services, we, I know where to go for that, human trafficking, and so on and so forth. So the way to approach this is to be part of the community and work within a network, not in isolation. We are not here to put a flag. We are here to solve problems together. Even before COVID, the mental health of our world's children was a concern. Half of all mental disorders develop before the age of 15. The majority of the 800,000 people who die by suicide every year are under 18. The UN agency also said that the pandemic has disrupted or halted critical mental health services in 93% of countries worldwide. What is your organization seeing and how do you think this can be resolved? The first network we joined when we decided to work on Staten Island was the Anti-Human Tra Human Trafficking Task Force. It was very important. There is so much we don't know about human trafficking and kids who have mental problems, 
who are depressed, who are detached, who are idle, are easy prey to uh, people who would uh, then introduce them into prostit prostitution, drugs, gangs. Early detection is very important. And uh, keeping kids out from the streets, away from the streets where, or, you know, closed in, a, in, a, in, in their home, uh, giving them hope, things they like to do, activities is so important. So these are some of the factors we have to insist on. One of our programs is to offer internships and job preparation to children. So they will be able to, we are very well connected with American corporations, companies. So in collaboration with them, we will place children who at the moment are even idle. They don't want to go to school. They don't work, but uh, maybe finding what their passion is and then inserting them in an environment where they can work, become contributing member, members of our, of our society will change their perspective. And so we'll restore their hopes. So if we don't want kids to get in situations like the ones you are described, I, I think, you know, the first thing is keep them busy. Keep them busy with things they like, develop their passions. What do you see as among the greatest challenges coming out of the pandemic? I think that, you know, the pandemic has created a gap. I'll give you an example. And again, I'll bring my, my children. I have three kids, as I mentioned, in elementary school. The fourth is older. But what I've seen in them is that, for example, the pandemic has determined a situation where they are forgetting how to spell words. Why? They were home. They were connecting remotely to uh, the, the teacher, who, by the way, are doing an amazing job. But, you know, they were not writing on notebooks. They're using tablets and computers to write their homework with automatic speller check. They don't know anymore how to spell words. This is one of the many issues of COVID. Technology has helped us tremendously. Without technology, we couldn't have allowed our kids to continue with uh, their education. But at the same time, there are so many other aspects. You mentioned the human connection, interacting with other children, being close to them, playing. All these aspects need to be restored. So extracurricular activities, like the one that we will be offering at our center, will be crucial to fill that gap as kids go back full-time to school. How much has your work with A Chance in Life influenced your own parenting or vice versa? How has your parenting influenced your work with A Chance in Life? I think it's uh, probably the first. I think my work with A Chance in Life has influenced my, the way, you know, I am a parent. I remember, you know, when uh, Chiara, one of my daughters, she's uh, 10 now, but she was eight, I guess, at the time, came with me to Ethiopia and to India. And I wanted to do that because among all the kids I have, I hope she's not, she would not listen to this program, but she is the one that, you know, really enjoys every, uh, you know, everything in life. You know, she wants all the uh, latest technology and everything. So I decided to bring her to show her what is life in other countries. I remember one night after visiting a hospital where there were severely uh, handicapped or differently abled children, most of them, you know, were also mentally disabled and in very critical situations. We went back to our room and she cried and she felt so sorry for what she, has, she, she had seen. In another occasion in Ethiopia, she literally wanted to give all her clothes to the children because they were, they were you know, barefoot. They didn't have shirts. They didn't have anything. 
But what she learned was they were all smiling. They were all happy. So she came back a different person. And, you know, every time I travel too, I came back as a different parent. So how can people get involved? People who want to learn more about your organization, make a difference in their own communities even. Well, the first step is probably to visit our website to learn more about the organization, the history, what our current projects are, where are we working now. So our website is www.achanceinlife.org. Then, you know, call our office, uh, make an appointment, come and visit, come and visit Staten Island, our program there. You know, you can be a mentor. You can spend time with our children and share your experience. You don't have to have any talent to do so. Spending time, quality time to listen to a child is already probably one of the best mentoring acts you could probably do. So let us know. You can volunteer with us. Of course, you know, we uh, are a nonprofit organization. Donations are an important part of uh, our survival and our, you know, to give us the opportunity to provide these services. Thank you so much for your time. Grazie mille. Thank you so much for your uh, time and for inviting me to your wonderful show. Ciao. Ciao. Gabriele Delmonico is president and executive director of A Chance in Life. More info at achanceinlife.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Madison Colombo. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>